You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about pediatrics and how we can use extrapolation to help have data or evidence for a pediatric submission. And here we have Andrew Thompson from the regulatory side here. So stay tuned for this really, really good discussion with him. And now some music. Understanding about a pediatric submission is really, really important. Maybe you have kids yourself. I do have kids and there's always a lack of treatment in that area. So I think as an industry, we need to become better in serving this uh, population. Of course, there's certain diseases that, well, there's really no kind of pediatric uh, indication, but very often there is. And so this episode will help you understand what you can do to get evidence through extrapolation for this population. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate is only £20 for non-high-income countries and £95 for high-income countries. And of course, there's the PSI conference in Gothenburg coming up. So head over to psiweb.org to learn about the conference and all the other PSI activities. And hopefully see you in Gothenburg. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. Today, I'm really, really happy to have Andrew Thompson here, who is really an expert in the topic that we are talking about. And not only that, he's also coming from the regulatory side of things, um, which I think is, is maybe the first time I have someone from the email, the FDA on, on my on my podcast. So I'm really honored about this. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. I'm very well, thanks. Very good. Before we dive into the topic, um, maybe you can speak a little bit about your career and why you actually went into biostatistics in the first place. Um, yeah, sure. So I started, like like many statisticians, doing uh, maths at university, and I found I wasn't particularly good at either pure or applied maths, but somehow I had a knack of being okay at statistics. And um, in my final year, uh, there was an advert on the screen in one of my stats lectures for a for an MSc place in statistics with applications in medicine, which would be funded. Um, and I thought that sounded like a an interesting thing to do for a year. And the funding certainly helped and never really looked back since. Um, and I started off wanting to be an academic and I, I worked um, at Imperial College and, and then did a PhD at London School of Hygiene. And then towards the end of my PhD, I wasn't so sure that I wanted to be an academic after all. And I looked at the, uh, the alternative options out there for me. And at that time, it just so happened that the MHRA were recruiting for statistical assessors. And I applied 
and I was very fortunate to be offered a position. Um, and so I started work doing statistical assessment, uh, looking at dossiers uh, across all therapeutic areas. And it was an incredibly interesting job with a, a huge learning curve that never really stopped uh, spiking upwards, really. There was always something new happening. Um, and it, it was a very rewarding and interesting role. And uh, after after a few years of doing that, I then I moved onwards and upwards to be head of epidemiology at the MHRA, looking more at the uh, the post licensing side, mm-hmm. which is very interesting, especially as we we're doing uh, kind of starting rolling out of vaccine safety studies. So the experts in my team were were looking at that, and and these have become you know much more high profile over the last two years, should we say? Yes, yes, I think the yeah. post marketing authorization work uh, also from the regulatory side has much more kind of visibility nowadays than than it has in the past for sure yeah yeah definitely and i think that that leads on nicely to where i went next which is ema who've, who've been very much integral in making sure that 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 visibility is there and so i've been at the ema for about seven years now um a lot of the work i do is is internal consultancy uh from a statistical point of view And also, you know, finding ways to go forward when there are perhaps differences of opinion between different member states. We still have to have one unified position. So finding the the optimal scientific role uh, route for that is is one of my key roles. I, I sit in the task force dedicated to data analytics and methodology, which has, has been going a couple of years now, and it's it's a real hub for uh, quantitative methods at EMA. Yeah. I started getting involved in extrapolation actually about six years ago, I'd say, when when the reflection paper was being drafted. And it's very much kind of cross-collaboration between clinicians and statisticians and you know, pharmacometricians and modelers um, in particular. So to, to bring those three disciplines together and to get everyone at the same table and, and singing from the same hymn sheet, um, I helped steer that through. And um, yeah, and so I'm now on ICH E11A as well, where I, which is pediatric extrapolation. I'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, that's out very soon, and I lead the stats sub team on that. Yep, very, very good. Uh, I think this is a this is a really, really important topic uh, because I myself have three little kids, and I know that for lots of lots of different compounds, you know, there's very, very limited data for for children. And so, um, but still, you know, of course, children need to be treated. And I think there's a lot of physicians that they need to treat the, or pediatricians that need to treat patients irrespective of, of whether there's an approved for, uh, you know, product or, or whatever. And I really rather have them some really good, solid data and, and quantitative assessment than you know just maybe some anecdotal things and and just personal opinion yeah and i think that's that's uh, that's very on point you know at a holistic level extrapolation is about bringing drugs on label um so that all prescribers have information on safe and effective doses in the pediatric population so it's not just those who have used it off label and those who are happy doing so but but every treating physician should uh should have the evidence yep. that they need yeah it's really about Making data available for good decision making in the end. And that's one of my, my, per, also my personal kind of goals to, to improve that. So when we speak about extrapolation, what actually is that? Because when I'm just thinking back of my stats parts and I think, okay, you have a 
maybe you have a linear regression and kind of most of your observations are between, don't know, 50 and 150. And then you try to extrapolate what happens beyond 200 or something like this. <laughs> yeah. Is that the same thing? Well, not exactly, no. But I think, you know, maybe the principle is the same in that we want to try and bring the label down from adults to include younger age groups in it. But I mean, we, we define it quite clearly as being, uh, it's based on information in one or more source populations. Uh, such as adults or children, um, is, that's relevant to a target population. So, for example, another pediatric population in a way that can be quantified and used as a basis for further development. And so effectively, that's, that's making use of information in one population to guide the design and analysis and interpretation in another. And, and we've actually phrased a lot of our reflection paper it's age neutral. We don't talk necessarily about pediatric extrapolation okay. because it applies across development where you could have such populations. Now, it just so happens that pediatrics is perhaps an obvious main use case because you have a, this, this source population of adults and you have a target population of children and you know that you want to be able to do as rational development as, pro, as possible. So it, it's the, the principles apply across development, but the, the, the key use case right now is pediatric. Okay. So it could also apply, for example, older population. It could apply for, for kind of potentially patients that, you know, were previously excluded from studies for whatever reasons, these kind of things, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there are indications where where we have used extrapolation for that because of, as you say, patients who've been excluded. Uh, male breast cancer is an obvious example. So, yeah, it, it's it's something that uh, that can work. But I think perhaps the difference is that, that, is that PEDS is, is often after adults. And I think that's often as it should be in terms of development. We all want safe and effective medicines for children, absolutely. But if we have no real evidence that it's safe and effective in adults, then I do think people start getting nervous about whether we should be yep. starting straight away in the paediatric population. So it is kind of inevitable we have this order to development in, in many situations. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same what we did, what we have seen with uh, COVID and then in the pandemics that, you know, first it was for adults and then you went into more and more younger patient populations. Yeah. So in the document, uh, and I'm referencing this in, in the show notes, it says a lot about talking about the source and the target population. So can you speak a little bit to what that exactly is? Yeah. So the source population is, is what you are extrapolating from. And the target is who you are extrapolating to. And mm -hmm. so we would normally think so, therefore, that if we're talking about pediatric extrapolation, that your target population is some sort of, of pediatric population. Does that mean that we have no data whatsoever for the target population? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all, actually. And I think that the purpose of this is to work out what data we need based on what we have already. So mm. your sources might be adults, so you could extrapolate from adults to children. But children are not homogenous, and they're not just small adults. They, they have different organ maturation at various stages. And so the extrapolation from those different age groups can be different. So you could, for example, extrapolate from adults to adolescents, and then you could extrapolate from adolescents to six to 12 year olds, and okay. extrapolate from six and 12 down to four and six and two and four. And each of those situations, you would have some information in a relevant pediatric population of some sort. 
which you could then use to inform what other information you would need in those different age ranges that you're looking into. Okay. So is it all kind of safety, efficacy, and pharmacology data, or do, do you also use other data sources? Well, in our reflection paper, I'll talk about the extrapolation concept um, and the plan first. So we, we strip, split extrapolation into to two main steps. On a more technical level, we have the extrapolation concept and the plan. And the concept is, is kind of held up by three pillars of pharmacokinetics and disease and clinical pharmacology. So the drug, uh, the disease, and the drug and the disease. And we have a table in our reflection paper. And I think it's, it's not a box ticking exercise. It's a box filling exercise. Okay. And we need to identify where the gaps are in the knowledge. So, for example, we might know a lot about clinical pharmacology in adults, which we probably should do by the time that we're embarking on paediatric extrapolation. We should know about the natural course of disease in adults as well. That may be different in children, but we should find the evidence to do that. So, for example, real-world evidence data sources may be able to tell you something beyond what clinical trials show to show that actually the course of disease or the time taken to subsequent therapy or whatever is the information you're looking for may be available in, in real-world data sources as well. And, of course, with the, the, the preclinical models as well for the ADME data. So there's all sorts of, of possible data that could be brought to the table to fill in these gaps in the knowledge. And to me, that's why it's quite a... Uh, an interesting area to be involved in because you can you can work with many different data sources and types and, and experts in the field. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely see that. It's kind of pulling data from all the different sorts, clinical, epidemiologically, real-world evidence data, pharmacokinetic and PKPD data, and combines them all into one one kind of model, one kind of concept or framework is, is quite interesting. Yeah, it's, it's quite hard as well. And I don't think that should be underestimated. I think so. What we're trying to do is to say, how much can we trust the data in the adult population as being relevant for the pediatric population we're interested in? So the adult data is what it is. You know, and the studies have been done and we have that information. But then the, the work on, on the clean farm and the, and the disease similarity and the ADME data all adds together to say, and because of all of this additional knowledge, this is how much we can trust the, the adult data. And I think that it's it's a knowledge synthesis process and also a large degree of clinical judgment as well. Um, okay. okay. So in the guidance, it states where possible quantitative methods should be used for the collation of available data and the investigation of potential modifiers of the treatment effect. And I think in terms of modifiers of the treatment effect is really about kind of the differences between the target and the source population, what we are mostly interested in, not other modifiers. Yeah, I think that's a, a correct interpretation. And I think in terms of quantitative methods, well, the first thing that springs to mind is meta-analysis. It's a standard part of the tools. But we also have, you know, our pharmacometric colleagues, they're very good at dose exposure modeling and exposure response modeling. And all of those will be potentially different in adults and children. And I think what we would like to do is to link that together with better predictions for efficacy, because we, we can accept that there may well be different efficacy in children compared to adults. And that's okay, because as long as we're 
we know what that is and we've quantified it and we've got data to robustly confirm that, then we don't necessarily need to, to demonstrate, have a standalone demonstration of efficacy as it is. Or perhaps maybe we need it to is confirm that our, our modeling is, is sufficiently robust. And I think it's important here to, to recognize that we don't have equipoise per se because we have the adult data where something has been demonstrated, but we're not operating in a vacuum. And mm. the requirements for uh, for what's required for pediatric development, we'll have to take that information into account. And so if we're not demonstrating efficacy, but instead confirming that predictive efficacy is as we expected, then that will require a, a different amount of evidence to demonstrate that. And I think from a kind of a practical point of view, that or theoretically, a bit of both really, it always needs to be less because otherwise we're not doing extrapolation. If we do this whole exercise and do lots of modelling and then conclude that we need more data than we would have done doing standalone efficacy, then, then something's gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing as well, I think it's important to note that we don't always need data to, to verify predictions either. Now, the, the purpose isn't to, to just to kind of confirm the model for the sake of it. Now, there's an uncertainty there we don't know, and we need the data to be convinced. But there are situations, so certain anti-infectives, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a, a sufficient amount into the bloodstream to, to kill the bug. It's not about generating a receptor-driven response, for example. So yeah. as long as we know what the PK is and we have a safe dose that we can use in paediatrics, then then we don't necessarily need any additional efficacy data depending on the situation. So that's exactly where kind of the disease comes into play. The better yeah. we understand the disease the better we can, you know, be sure that there's certain kind of relationships hold true. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, there's been huge advances in, in many areas where we've got a, a really good understanding of the disease and, it, and the, the understanding has improved and that's driven drug development, kind of immunological challenges in children, for example, in ulcerative colitis and, and pediatric Crohn's and, and things like that. You know, we, we have a wealth of products compared to what we had 20 years ago and, and a huge more uh, understanding of the immune-driven responses of the, of the disease and, and the, the drugs used to target it. So if I'm thinking about the data from the source population, do I need to kind of treat different parts of the data with different kind of weights, so to say, or, or how much it helps me? So just if I'm thinking about Let's say I'm, I want to extract to kind of teenagers and I have a study, you know, above 18 years old. Is the data kind of that I collect between 18 and 25, is that potentially more relevant than let's say the data of those being over 50? Yes, it is. And I think that is a challenge that, that we have is that we, Companies can't always control precisely the age distribution of people who go into their adult development programs. But I think we all, when looking at, say, extrapolating from adults to, to adolescents, would think it is more relevant. I think, again, where statisticians would, would need to get involved would be you know, appropriately designed subgroup analyses and interpreting them. Because ultimately, if you don't really see a difference in the age subgroups, that perhaps lends not weight that extrapolation is more possible or, or is a better option, but that you could use the entire adult data set and be confident using the adult data set and not just the 18 to 24-year-olds. But I think we do start at the, the default position that some data are more relevant than others yet. Yeah, I, I see that. And so that's actually quite interesting also. If you kind of plan for uh, going into more younger populations, having potentially more patients on the lower end of the spectrum, 
could help you to gather more data in that regard, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I think there is one of the challenges that exists, I think, is encouraging companies to design adult development with an eye on the inevitable pediatric development that will come afterwards. You know, we, we make companies agree pediatric development plans after adult clinical pharmacology studies, often paraphrased to at the end of phase one, but there's sometimes a little more nuanced than that. But we would like to be able to make sure that the the trials would be relevant so we can utilize as much. And yes, that's about age distribution. And sometimes it's about things like collecting uh, relevant important biomarkers or something similar, which we, which companies might be thinking about doing anyway. But if if we have a conversation, we're saying you know, this will be really crucial to mm. facilitating an expedited pediatric extrapolation plan. Hopefully we can encourage people to think about the, the design of the adult studies with more than just one eye on the pediatrics. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I think I see it also from an kind of HDA perspective. There's much more kind of we can do with good phase three package than just getting regulatory approval for the adults, which of course, you know, it's also quite a hurdle to, 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 to jump <laughs> over anyway. But, um, yeah, that's really good. What further challenges do you see? You know, what, what are kind of your, your biggest, biggest concerns that you have? Um, well, I think they, they kind of fall into uh, many different areas and there's the kind of, the logistical challenges of, of extrapolation in the timings of this. As I've said, you know, you're supposed to agree uh, your paediatric development plan at the end of, including the sample size, at the end of uh, phase one in adults. And, and the, the timings of the interactions with the regulatory authorities is difficult because what we've said in the reflection paper, we'd like to be as iterative as possible because we recognize and accept that new data comes out through the adult development, which will influence the pediatric development but also what we would like to do is to to minimize the amount of modifications that companies have to make mm. to their pediatric plans as well we'd like to be able to say well, yes let's everything go smoothly and if it all happens as you hope it will then carry on and if not come back and talk to us later but finding words to do that to fit with our legislation just involves a lot of upfront planning and and it is it is hard but we would like to agree as much as possible as early as possible i think also that it is pediatric development is global and it almost inevitably is and that means that companies will have to agree across agencies uh, globally um you know you have to get agreement between different eu committees such as the pediatric committee and our chmp our, our licensure but also between eu and fda and indeed beyond so so ich 11a hopefully will go some way to uh ensuring that that's going to be more straightforward in the future for companies. So if you, this kind of pre-specification thing or kind of pre-agreeing to things before we collect the data, I think is a, you know, one of the paradigms that we have in drug development to kind of avoid fishing for significance <laughs> and these yeah. kind of things. I think that is particularly, you know, difficult for these models because you, pull data from different sites and you have see different studies coming at in at different time points. Is that kind of the background for the pre-specification and kind of this iterative approach? Well I think you know if we if we're going to agree a pediatric sample size at the end of phase one and adults and then we have phase two and phase three data which don't necessarily line up exactly as the company thought they would in either direction, both 
impressively or less impressively, then I think that information will need to be taken account into the paediatric development. And obviously, if you have a drug that is that turns out to be an absolute wonder drug and has a huge treatment effect, and there's there's good evidence that the mechanism of action is going to be similar, at least in some paediatric subgroups, then we will be more comfortable saying it's reasonable to conclude that the benefit risk is positive in children. Whereas if you've got a phase three package where you've, you didn't get as big treatment effects as you hoped for and you just squeaked over the line with P equals 0.049 or, or whatever it is, then yeah. it's inevitable that the, the situation of, of how comfortable we would be extrapolating and thus how much data or what type of data is going to change. And I think also that's, you know, that's the other main challenges are the design and the analysis of these studies. Yeah. And the design is at a quite high level, uh, whether you would require a randomized control trial, but at a, at a different level of evidence, or if you would require a, a single arm trial, or if you would require something that could rely on and only on pharmacokinetic data because you've got sufficient. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point. In the end, it's about how comfortable are you with the decision making and the overall robustness of the data is is important. And and you know the, we do talk about extrapolation being a spectrum, and I think we've moved away from decision trees or uh, ways of saying you know if this then that. Uh, but nevertheless, there are a finite number of study designs available to developers. And yeah. so working out, given all of this information and all the uncertainties, wh- which are the, the trial designs that we, we want would be is part of the uh, one of the main challenges. I think another one which needs to be mentioned is, is kind of Bayesian and frequentist designs. And I think it's a very potentially a very rich area for the use of Bayesian statistics because yes. you have some sort of prior in the adult data, you know, because you do have prior information. And and when people hear the words prior information, it, it's only natural, I think, that people think, oh, that means I should be doing Bayesian statistics. Yeah. Um, and and indeed, you know, FDA have been have been driven by by Purdue for six, where their legislation says they have to investigate Bayesian methods. And it's an obvious place to start, really, because because of this prior information. I think we're still not entirely sure of the utility of all Bayesian methods and that they're not all created equally. I, th- I think the, uh, the one thing where you get the information is, of course, from the adult population. The other thing where you get information, especially about kind of uh, standard of care or placebo treatment is, of course, reward evidence data. Yeah. And so that is, that's another piece of the puzzle that you can fit in. And I just recently recorded a podcast about how you can use real-world evidence data to kind of um, help to with your comparison data for a clinical trial. And isn't that going into a similar direction? Yeah, it is. And I think we we use tend to use the phrase augmented, I think is, is probably the, the buzzword yep. at the moment that, that we would probably use, that augmenting the control arm potentially using other randomized control trials, control arms is one way, but sometimes they don't exist or you don't have anything that's, that you think is actually relevant. And so you might be able to, to use that. I mean, if you want to use a, a successful randomized control trial arm of an active and, and show superiority against that, I think we might be quite happy with that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's At least on the efficacy side, yeah. <laughs> 
And so there are there will be situations where real world evidence is is suitable for that, and we it will depend on the design and the disease and the indication and, and all, all of the things that go into these thinkings in adults apply in this situation as well. But it's clear that the door is not closed here, and that you know, the there are options available. There are differences of opinion between uh, some regulatory statisticians about whether it would be better to to borrow the treatment effect from adults. Or, or whether you would prefer to just augment a control arm. And I don't think there is a, a unified position as to which of those two approaches would be preferable. And there are strong views on both sides of the, uh, of the argument on that. Yeah, I can foresee that this is not a, not a closed discussion that, that could kind of go on for, for quite some time. Maybe we can kind of at one time come up with some kind of unified approach there that takes both sides into account. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a possibility. And I think that's, that's the good thing about well thought out Bayesian designs, for example. If you're not making, if you're not making multiple changes and you're not having multiple in, interim analyses, and actually it's quite a clean Bayesian design, so to speak, but you just wish to interpret the data in light of the prior, then you can run a pediatric program successfully and analyze it in a frequentist fashion, analyze it in a Bayesian fashion and come to conclusions based on that. And indeed, if you read the uh, assessment reports from the FDA for bulimumab in lupus, uh, they they chose uh, a Bayesian method as one way of characterising the efficacy. And in the EU, we chose a more frequentist way to interpret the data. Um, but the, the key point was that because the trial had been sufficiently well designed in the first place, both interpretations were able to happen. And it was all a little bit on the post hoc side, and it's, it's not necessarily the poster child example one might use, but it is a, a good example of, of different regulatory authorities applying different frameworks for analysis and still coming to similar conclusions. Yeah, I think that's actually quite nice. If you, if you have different analysis approaches and vastly different conclusions, I'd always be concerned anyway. So... That's a good point. Any other kind of big challenge that you see kind of beyond the, the things that we talked about in terms of analysis and logistics? Uh, yeah, I think, again, the design measuring what you need in, in the pediatric trials, in the adult trials is something that needs to be really thought out. But another really big one is communication. And that's communication between companies and regulators and also between other stakeholders as well. And again, we need to be clearer regarding the uh, acceptability of certain designs, in particular with Bayesian ones, the, the operating characteristics and the, the type one error and the type, uh, both conditional and unconditional. And what, what the important metrics are for success for regulators. Because if we don't tell you in advance what our metric for success is, then it's quite difficult for a company to go away and in particular to, to power and to size their study. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we do want to know properly what these operating characteristics are. And if companies say it will be this and we can accept that. I think some of the, some of the more technical Bayesian designs, such as dynamic borrowing, where we don't know in, adv in advance how much borrowing is going to take place because it depends how well the data matches the prior things like that. Certainly we understand the models, but we're just not entirely sure that they routinely robustly provide all the the outputs we want if if all the borrowings is left for model so we need to perhaps better communicate between us between industry and regulators as to as to what our standards and expectations are and then once these have been successful to 
to kind of tell the outside world that because some people will inevitably look at a trial and say, oh, that had a p-value of 0.1, so therefore it's a failed study. And and that's not how we would interpret it in this mm-hmm. situation. And and trying to explain to the outside world that from our point of view, actually, given the experimental circumstances and everything else we know, actually, that's a success. Yeah, yeah I think that's a, that's a good point that it, uh, it becomes much more challenging to kind of communicate well all the evidence together. Um, I think that is also potentially we need to communicate these these models also in a different way rather than, you know, just taking a number like the p-value you just mentioned, but more describe kind of the the distribution of things, more describe kind of the relationships, for example, in terms of the uh, treatment effect modifiers, potentially there's no no, uh, effects there. And to, to show kind of all the data is really robust. Would you think like there would be potentially some more, more visual tools to, to show these kind of things rather than tables? I'm just thinking about kind of predictive analytics and Bayesian analysis. Lots of this is really, really much more kind of about distributions rather than point estimates. Yeah, very much so. And I think you know, one of the challenges we face with some Bayesian models, for example, is that the unconditional type 1 error can be computationally uh, calculated, which you know, we we can accept. But, and then that can be plotted against various underlying parameters and it's not constant. And actually understanding where the type 1 error is raised, as well as how much it's raised by by using these these Bayesian methods is, is inherently a visual display. And I think that there was a, a paper from the DIA Bayes group quite a few years ago now with Kurt Fieler was on the, the lead author. And that that one's really good for giving examples of how you might display data like that. Other visualizations which I'm particularly fond of are are thinking about, you know, what does success look like? And as an example, we will say a company would make a proposal for some uh, analysis plan and say, okay, well, if we were to see, say it's 40 subjects per arm, randomized one-to-one, and if we were to see 30 subjects successful on control, how many would we, on, how many would we need to see successful on active? You know, it would be 35 out of 40 or whatever the numbers are. But but then looking at different cut points, if you want to see what well, if it was 10 subjects successful on control, how many? So really understanding when would a company consider this trial as a success? And and then we can say, well, actually, that then translates to a certain treatment effect. And we would say, well, yes, that looks like an important treatment effect that we would be interested in. And if you can go through that process, then you can you can agree a, a program and, and a sample size and, and success criteria quite quickly. And I do think that better visualizations for that certainly help focus the mind in terms of that relationship between um the size of the treatment effect and and, and the, the sample size you've got to hand. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. You mentioned the uh, this lupus case study. Yeah. Um, I guess that is publicly available, isn't it? Um, so you can, there's always a wealth of information on, on regulatory uh, websites. You can look at the EU, the European Public Assessment Report, um, and the FDA information is available on their website as well. And indeed, I think the, the regulatory websites are a very good resource for that kind of thing because it is sometimes it's difficult to communicate to the outside world it's not necessarily something that people would write up in a paper for the outside world 
actually some of the, the most interesting extrapolation case studies I've seen are ones that have been presented at conferences. And uh, one of the, the things that's happened for the pandemic is I've been able to, to at least online attend a lot more of mm. these meetings than I have been previously when they might have been face to face. There's something that's so great about the face to face approach that I'm, I'm hoping is going to be returning very soon. But, yeah. but yeah. certainly I've been exposed to a, to a, a much uh, wider array of, of things like case studies because these are perhaps the, the four that people, uh, webinars and, and so on and so forth. Okay. Let's put a couple of these into the online, uh, appendix here, our show notes. And yeah. then you as a listener, you can have a look there. Just head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and then find this uh, nice episode with, with Andrew. Thanks so much, Andrew. That was an awesome discussion. We, we started really with kind of what actually is extrapolation and, you know, that we really want to extrapolate from the source to the target population. We had a lot of discussion about what type of evidence we need and where this can all come from and that it comes from disease understanding it comes from efficacy and safety data it comes from pk data but it can also come from real world evidence data and, and other data sources that help us to have a good understanding of the overall data to make a good recommendation for for physicians for patients and uh, we also talked about you know challenges like communication logistics having good kind of iterative planning on times all the data that comes in and whether that kind of changes our plans or how we can you know make sure that we have all our plans well thought through and if there's some change in the data that we didn't accept uh, expect that we can make amendments make things faster or slower depending on the data is there any final thoughts that you would like to leave the listener with? Uh, yeah, um, I just want to mention ICHE11A, which should be out very soon. Hopefully, by the time some people are downloading it, it may already be out. So that'll be out for, for consultation. So please do comment on that um, and it help us improve the document. And, and also, finally, thank you for inviting me. It's been very nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Did you enjoy this episode? As much as I really enjoyed the discussion with Andrew, then let me know about it. Connect with me on LinkedIn and tell me what you think. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.